times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared, enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. So that's it, friends. The goat sleeps in the valley once more. The campgrounds are closed for the season. But I think it's safe to say that the gates will be reopening again. Kate has got so much more to share with us, after all. But I, for one, am glad to take a little break from goats in general. I've been having nightmares about the beasts, you see. Their horned visages, their weird horizontal hourglass eyes, their angry bleating. And I'm sure that it's simply because Goat Valley Campgrounds was so good. There couldn't be any other possible reason I'm being haunted by a tall, cloaked figure in a skeletal goat mask. Now, in totally unrelated news, I'm all packed for my vacation next week. Only just back from Colorado, and I'm already heading out again. Ohio, how exciting. I can't pinpoint exactly where the Gold Meadow Resort is, obviously, because this is a VIP retreat, and I know many No Sleep Podcast fans might try parachuting in to get a snap or two of me. But it's in southeastern Ohio, near the Appalachian Mountains, and there are a lot of bluebirds around, so I'm told. I showed Brandon, who's intimately familiar with Ohio, and he did recall something about the place, but he couldn't put his finger on what. I'm sure it was something wonderful and totally not dangerous, though. Anyway, I must make haste because it's going to be a long trip. I'll catch you on site next weekend, folks. For now, it's time for the horror. In our first tale, we join Natalie and Kelsey, a pair of teenage girls who want to do nothing more than chill out, paint their nails, and listen to the B-52s. But in this tale, shared with us by author Erica Fotides, their parents just will not leave them alone. Performing this tale are Tanya Milosevic, Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Doolin, Lindsay Russo, and Sarah Thomas. So sit back with a snack and put on Love Shack, because if you're trying to talk to me, then I can't hear you. Mom, what? Kelsey flung herself backward onto her bed in a cloud of springy blonde curls. God, 
God, I'm so sick of this. What's going on? I removed my headphones. Love Shack continued murmuring through the tinny speakers. She's been yelling up the stairs at me like the stupidest questions. I'm like, hello? But she doesn't respond. She just keeps asking more bullshit questions. Kelsey sighed and looked down at her nails. We'd been in the middle of painting them. In her exasperation, she'd smeared a long line of passion plum down the back of her hand. Damn it. She rubbed at the smear with her fingertip. I passed her the bottle of nail polish remover with some cotton balls, and she started scrubbing, until the stain resembled a faded bruise. What's she saying? Oh, it's so dumb. She'll be like, Kelsey, honey, are you okay? And I'll be like, yeah, mom, I'm fine. And then she'll say, are you happy? And I'll go, why? And then she won't say anything for a while. Then she'll say, where are you? Are you safe? What? (laughs) Kelsey shook her head. Yeah, I know. I'm like, mom, I'm upstairs in my room. Of course I'm safe. And then she stops talking to me. It's crazy. Why don't you go downstairs and ask her what's going on? I tried the last time she did this, but when I went downstairs, no one was home. I didn't hear her leave, but she must have gone to the store or something. Can you pass me the pink? I want to do polka dots on top. Which pink? I held up magenta magic and pink perfection. Not those, the one behind your foot. The bed creaked beneath us as I turned to find Carnation Bliss tucked under one of her pillows. You are really picky. <laughs> I tossed her the bottle. Well, you could do a lot better than plain black. It's so depressing. I like black. I think it makes me mysterious. Plus, none of the asshole jocks hit on me when I dress a little more edgy. (laughs) Whatever you say. I got me a Chrysler. It seats about 20. So hurry up and bring your jukebox money. Love Shack is a little place where we can get together. Love Shack, baby. Put that on my stereo. I love that song. I rewound the tape in my crappy old Walkman, watching as the little wheels inside spun as though being powered by invisible hamsters. Love Shack, baby, love Shack. Kelsey, honey, are you there? Her mom's voice cut through our sing-along like a knife. Kelsey groaned and got up to turn off the tape. What, mom? Kelsey, it's your mother. Kelsey's blue eyes opened wide and she stared at me dumbfounded. What the hell? Kelsey, are you there? Mom, Jesus! I told you already that I'm upstairs! What's it like where you are? Kelsey's mom's voice sounded odd to me. A staticky whine like the radio going out of signal at first, then loudly buzzing in our ears like a mosquito. We couldn't kill. Instinctively, I rubbed my ear. Mrs. Watson, is everything okay? Who is that? It's Natalie. I'm hanging out with Kelsey. We're upstairs in her room. Mrs. Watson didn't respond. Even though Kelsey had stopped the tape, Love Shack was playing again on the stereo. 
I told you, this is what happens every time. She asks some batshit questions and then she stops talking. Do you want to go downstairs and check on her? Maybe she's sick. No, it's cool. I don't really want to talk to her. She examined her toenails, eyes scanning the nail polish bottles that lay strewn across the bed. Did Dave call you after your date last week? Wow, I'd forgotten about Dave. I guess it was just last Friday, but it felt like years ago. What did we do? I tried to remember, but everything felt hazy, like something from a dream. Dave? I don't remember if he called. Kelsey looked at me quizzically. She was wearing a lot of baby blue eyeshadow. It didn't look very good on her, but I didn't want to hurt her feelings by telling her that. What do you mean you don't remember? You were obsessed with him. Oh, Dave, please take me to the roller rink. Dave, I want to drink chocolate shakes with you every day and have 27 of your babies. Kelsey (laughs) roared with laughter and fell back on the bed, landing on a pile of nail polish bottles. Ouch! I tossed a pillow at her and it bounced off her chest, still shaking with giggles. You deserved that. I rolled my eyes as she rubbed her neck and mock whimpered. Seriously, though. You told me the date was great. You were all moony over him. Honestly, I think he's kind of a nerd, but you're the one who won't date the hot jocks. Why couldn't I remember my date with Dave? What did we do? I was having trouble picturing his face, too. Did he have blonde hair or brown? Blue eyes? Green eyes? Love Shack, baby Love Shack. How long is this song? Kelsey, is Natalie with you? Mrs. Watson's voice blared in our ears with the force of a freight train's horn. Love Shack's wailing chorus was gone. Mom! Oh my God! Stop! She just said she was! Silence answered her. This was getting really weird. I thought about going home, but it was only 3.30. How was it only 3.30? We'd been painting our nails and hanging out for at least an hour. Ooh, I have an idea. Kelsey turned towards me. I'm going to call Trevor. Who's Trevor? Oh, he's this guy I know from around. Anyway, he really likes pranking people. I want to see if he'll come over and screw with my mom. Why? Because it'll be hilarious. She walked to her phone and started dialing. I still couldn't believe her parents let her have a phone in her room. We just had the one in the kitchen. So every time I needed to call someone, there was always somebody watching. How could I talk to Dave when my mom was cooking hamburger helper three feet from me? Hey, it's Kels. All of a sudden, her voice had gone husky and deep, like she was 25 years old and wearing fishnets and high heels. It's Kelsey! You know who I am. Quit messing with me. She sounded like herself again. I need a favor. My mom is pissing me off royally right now. Can you prank call her or ding-dong ditch or something? Why? Because I need a laugh and you're the best at it. I promise I'll owe you a favor. No, not that kind of favor. Don't be gross. Great. Thanks, Trev. She hung up the phone and blew on her nails. He says he'll take care of her. 
Who is this guy? I didn't feel comfortable listening to her side of the conversation, and I imagined the other end was worse. He's a little older. I'm not really sure. But it's fine. He's cool. Don't worry about it. He's not going to hurt her. Just scare her a little. Do you think that's a good idea? Kelsey rolled her eyes. (laughs) If you had to put up with my mom all the time, you'd understand. Below us, I heard banging on the door. Wow, that was fast. We crept next to the bedroom door to hear what was happening. (laughs) Knock a little louder, sugar. Kelsey, is that you? Mrs. Watson's voice buzzed again in our ears. Ah, I just wanted to smack it away like a fly. It made my ears itchy. Jesus H. Christ! I've told her 50 times that I'm upstairs! A door downstairs opened. I heard what sounded like a bunch of chairs being knocked over. What is going on? My heart was pounding in my chest. This didn't feel right. Is that Trevor? What the hell is he doing? I heard banging again. It sounded like it was coming from all the walls of the house. Downstairs, glass shattered. I looked over at Kelsey, expecting her to fly off the bed and down the stairs to confront Trevor. But she just sat there, rigid. Her eyes were narrow slits. And her mouth was a thin white line as if she was concentrating on a difficult task. Her expression made the blue eyeshadow on her eyelids extend upwards to her eyebrows like a clown's. I would have cracked a joke about her makeup then, but this wasn't funny. The pounding continued, shaking the walls of her bedroom. Was she the one creating the chaos downstairs? Kelsey, make it stop! This isn't funny. You're scaring me. From beneath us, I heard someone crying. Deep, diaphragm-heaving sobs dredged up from the blackest pits of grief. The sound seemed to break Kelsey out of her trance. She blinked rapidly at me, her own blue eyes filling with stunned tears. That is not what I wanted Trevor to do. She grabbed her phone again and began furiously punching numbers. Get out of my house, asshole. I told you to do something funny, not upset my mom and break a bunch of shit. I sat on the bed, feeling uneasy. How was she talking to Trevor? Did he answer the downstairs phone? What did you say to my mom? I heard masculine mumbling on the other end of the line. You are such a piece of shit. Forget this number, asshole. She slammed the phone down. For a moment, we sat in silence. The sound of crying continued to drift up the stairs. (sighs) He told my mom that I was dead and that she deserved to burn in hell. Then he told me he couldn't resist breaking some dishes while he was here because he was already jonesing for it. What? That's awful. I'm going to check on my mom. Kelsey opened the door and walked downstairs. The crying grew softer, then stopped completely. The house was silent, and for some reason, it felt worse that way. A voice called to me, and it felt like my ears were stepping on broken glass. Natalie? Is that you? It was my mother. What was she doing here? Mom? 
The house was silent. Where did Kelsey and her mom go? Oh my God, Natalie. Honey, where are you? Is Kelsey with you? My head felt swimmy and my vision started to spark with flashes that became black floating dots. I felt like I was going to throw up, but I needed to follow her voice. I got up off the bed and walked down the stairs. I hadn't noticed how dark it had gotten. I could swear that the clock upstairs said 3.30, but it was nighttime now. The house was dark, except for lights coming from the family room, which cast a glow on the carpeted floor, illuminating the doorway. I walked toward it tentatively as though it were a portal to another world. Kelsey was standing in the doorway staring at her mother and father. I could see my mother and father there too. They were all sitting in a circle around a woman I'd never seen before. She had long, dark hair in a braid down her back and very pale eyes. There were lit candles all around them, the flickering glow creating strange, drifting shadows around the room. Both my mom and Kelsey's mom were crying. Kelsey's mom had gotten up from the circle and was sweeping up broken glass into a dustpan. My dad's hair was completely white. How had that happened? Kelsey and I looked at each other and then at the crazy scene in front of us. The strange woman looked directly at us and smiled. Hello, Kelsey. Hello, Natalie. Who the hell are you? Kelsey's hands were balled into tight fists. I hope she hadn't smeared her nail polish. They're here? My father looked around the room before staring back at the woman, his face puzzled and fascinated. I thought I heard sounds coming from her bedroom, but every time I went upstairs, no one was there. Natalie, maybe? Tears slid down my mother's nose and hit the coffee table, but she just kept crying. Why did she look so old? The woman fixed her pale eyes on us. Girls, your parents have waited a long time to talk to you. It's been 30 years since the accident. Do you remember what happened? Kelsey turned to me, her face pale. What accident? Suddenly, all the mental fog I'd felt that afternoon dissipated in an instant. I remembered driving Kelsey home from watching Edward Scissorhands at the movies. It was late and the roads were icy. We were giggling, singing along to the B-52s. I must have hit black ice, because suddenly we were spinning out of control and Kelsey was screaming. We hit something hard, and then it all went black. When I came to, it was 3.30 and we were upstairs in her bedroom. We'd been there ever since. I looked into the woman's pale eyes and nodded, remembering an old saying that if you'd saved a person's life, you were responsible for it forever. Did that also mean you were responsible if you caused that person's death? I took Kelsey's hand and squeezed it. I'm so sorry. The pale-eyed woman turned to our parents. You can talk to them now.
Some folks keep their work and home life separate. Some people are known to bring their work home with them. Other people work from home. And in this tale, shared with us by author Lauren Janice, we meet a woman who lives and works in the town morgue, which opens up a whole world of possibilities when you hear noises downstairs in the night. Performing this tale are Wafia White, Danielle McRae, Jesse Cornett, Dan Zapula, and Mary Murphy. So, on the night before a funeral for a friend, let's take a trip to Glenda Green. I have always lived in the morgue. It is just as odd saying it loud as it is for you to hear it. You see, I was born in the hall upstairs. My father, the mortician at the time, delivered me. He would later call it the highlight of his career, bringing life into the world, when he has always been surrounded by the dead. Honestly, I wish he would have left after I was born taken my mother and I into the city, gotten her the help she needed from her postpartum psychosis. Proper help, not that backwater treatment of pray it away. My father should have known. God has no place in medicine, but he clung to that cross until the day he died. I buried him next to mother, my faltering faith buried with him. That is how I became head mortician of Glenda Green. The cold sterility of the basement is comforting to me. The cheap fluorescent bulbs buzzing, washing out the gray room. Everything in here is gray. The cement walls, the metal tables, and the large freezers that line the wall immediately to your left when you first walk through the gray door at the bottom of the steps. I walk over to the middle table, the only one occupied tonight. A girl I knew. I know them all, of course. The town is suffocatingly small. Mary Burnaby was in my graduating class. We had sleepovers as children on the floor, right above my head. Those nights were filled with horror movies and too much sugar that, more often than not, ended with her chickening out and calling her mom to pick her up. I pulled back the sheet like I had for the sheriff. The bruising around her eyes had already begun to heal when she died. The bruises around her neck would never get the chance. A tear slides down my cheek as I sit heavily into the rolling chair, the squeak of it echoing in the room. Taking a deep breath, I steady myself. Pulling out my phone, I connect to the speakers and put on the music full blast. I close my eyes, detach for the moment. When I open them, I look at her again and begin my work. Hours later, and she is ready. She looks just like she had in life, the way I remembered her. Youthful glow to her cheeks and lips, long dark lashes sweeping down. After cleaning up and making sure everything is in order for her to be brought up to the parlor tomorrow morning, I lock the door to the morgue and make my way up the stairs. The white doors seem so far away, my sore body taking too long to get to the top. I finally make my way through the door. I'm greeted by the darkness of the mudroom 
Frowning, I pull the string that dangles from the ceiling above. The click resounds, but no light. The house and the morgue below work on separate power supplies, and the morgue has a system of three backup generators in the event of an exterior power outage. If the power had gone out while I was down there, I wouldn't even notice. Swearing under my breath, I stumbled through the dark, shedding my scrubs and tossing them blindly into the washer, grabbing my rope from the hook on the back of the door into the kitchen. I double-checked and confirmed that I had locked the door down to the morgue. Then I entered the kitchen. The time on the stove read 11.17 p.m. I could have sworn I had changed out the bulb in the mudroom, but maybe I was mistaken, or the socket itself was having trouble. At least it's not a power outage. I can deal with a broken light tomorrow. The spray of the water spits out of the shower head, cold at first, but then steadily warmer. I face the stream, letting it fall down on me. I stand there for a while before reaching for the shampoo. As I open my eyes, I freeze. I could see through the fogged glass of the standing shower into the bathroom into my bedroom beyond. I shouldn't be able to see my bedroom though. The door was closed and locked. I've always locked every door behind me. I'm a woman in her early 30s, living alone in a county where we have more bars than restaurants. Looking around the bathroom, I don't see anyone there. Leaving the water running, I slowly open the shower door and step out onto the mat. I wrap my towel around me and slowly approach the door. All I can hear is the shower behind me, the fan, and the sound of water dripping off of me onto the tile. I step out onto the hardwood floor of my room. The bedroom door leading to the hallway is also ajar. My wardrobe is on the far side of the room. I just need to get to the wardrobe, pull out the drawer, grab the shotgun, and load it. My heart beats painfully in my chest, my lungs burning from the strain of breath I didn't realize I had been holding. Easy as it sounded, it all depended on me getting past the door without the intruder knowing. I run for the door, slamming all my weight into it. It closes without resistance. The force of the impact on the solid wood rattles in my teeth. I hit the lock into place and listen, my ear pressed into the door. No sound comes from behind it. Then I feel it, air brushing my cheek like a breath. I shrieked as I whip around, slipping and falling. No one is behind me. The room is just as empty as before. A movement to my left. I turn my head and watch the thick emerald green curtain sway heavily, parting enough for me to see the window cracked open behind it. I get up and run to the window, slamming it shut and locking it then quickly going around and checking the other two windows as well, and the door once more for good measure. I pull the shotgun out and load it. Sitting on the bed, I strain my ears, listening, but only hear the wind outside, an owl in the distance, the creaking of the old oak outside my window, all the familiar sounds, ones I have listened to and fallen asleep to for decades. I get up and go into the bathroom, shutting off the shower, Setting the shotgun down on the vanity, I quickly pull on my lounge pants and tank top. Grabbing the shotgun once more, I go back to my room and sit down on the bed, nervously chewing my lip as I looked around the empty space. 
My eyes snagged on my cell phone. I pick it up and make a call to George, the local sheriff. His worried voice answers on the second ring. Anna? I don't know if I'm being paranoid, but I think someone is in my house. The words pour out of me as fast and shaky as I recount the events of the night to him. He listens patiently. I can have Steve stop by and check things out. I frown. Steve is new to town and new to the police force. What about you or Sarah? We're out on a call in Adams County right now. Adams County? A big fire. They needed all the hands they could get. He covers the receiver with his hands, says something I can't make out to someone else. Uh, We won't be back for another three hours at least. Do you really want to wait? No. Go ahead and send Steve. I'm sorry. It's okay, Anna. I'm glad you called me. How long do you think it will take for him to get here? Minutes. I just asked Sarah to call him. Thank you, George. Anytime. And I'll stop over as soon as I'm back in town. You don't have to. It's probably nothing. I do. And I will. Someone called his name in the background. I have to go. Steve will be there soon. And I'll call you when I'm on my way. Do you still have your dad's shotgun? Right here in my hand. Good girl. I can hear the smile in his voice. You keep that close and sit tight in a locked room. I smile into the phone. Already on it. Thank you again. See you soon. Bye, George. I disconnect the phone. Anxiety nodding in my stomach. I reassure myself that it's only a matter of minutes until Steve gets here, and I'm probably just overreacting. It was a long day, and I haven't slept well in weeks. My mind must be playing tricks on me. A loud scrape at the door. My head whips around. The bedside light flickers, then goes out. The doorknob rattles. I have a gun! My voice sounded much more confident than I feel. The rattling stops. You... I cock the gun. The sound is loud and unmistakable. Shakes violently in the frame with each massive boom of the fist. Out. Their voice is animalistic and dark. I never heard anything like it. It's barely even human sounding. I scream and back away. Fear spreads like pins and needles through my body. The gun shakes in my hand as the thing keeps shrieking. Get out! Get out! Get out! Get out! The doorbell rings. The thing goes silent. Floorboards creaking as if they are shifting their weight from one foot to the other. Steve! I let out a horrific gasp and run to the window. Throwing it open, I see him at the front door. Up here! He takes a step back and looks up at me. Confusion on his face. It's in the house! His brows furrow together. The door crashes and splinters behind him. The gun slips from my hand, falling to the floor. I scream and throw my legs over the windowsill. Steve draws his gun with a curse, pointing it at me. No, behind me. Get out of the way! I leap at the tree without a backwards glance, the bark biting into the flesh of my arms as I scramble to get my footing. 
I slide and fall from the branch, landing on my back. My vision tunnels. I can hear Steve yelling, but I can't understand him. Gunfire. My vision clears as I look up at my window. The glass shatters. The wind moves the curtains just enough for me to see the thing that had burst through the splintered glass. Mary Burnaby, in her finest blue dress, staring down at me with clouded eyes. Her lips are moving. I can't hear her over the sound of my own blood rushing through my head. Is that Mary? Steve runs to my side. Words pour from his mouth in a waterfall of nervousness, each word crashing into the next. That can't be Mary. Mary is dead. What is that? He looks behind me. Oh. His face pales. Dear God. I turn my head. The movement makes me want to vomit. I clench my eyes closed, pain dancing and swirling through my temples. I open them and quickly wish I hadn't. I'm looking at the cemetery next door. The iron fence. The flickering of headstones and the lumbering bodies crawling through the dirt and grass. Steve claws at me to get up, practically dragging me to his cruiser where he unceremoniously dumps me in the front passenger seat. He runs to the other side when the earth shakes. I hear a massive crack as he freezes in the front of the car. The headlights showcase the fear on his face as he seems to jerk down, the booming crack noise fading into a loud crumbling sound as the earth gives way beneath his feet. The cruiser door flies open. Bony fingers claw at me as I scream and kick. They pull me from the car, dragging me across the lawn towards the cemetery. My hands grapple at the ground, pulling up the grass. My nails scrape on the roots of the oak. They drag me through the open gates and to the graveyard. Don't fight. Mary's face comes into view. Don't fight. The hands lift me. I'm being carried by at least three of the dead. I look back at my house, my home. As the earth shifts, it breaks in two. One large crack that spiderwebs out. The house crumbles in on itself, then seeks into the great maw that has opened in the ground, that has swallowed Steve whole. I watch the town lights from down the hill flicker and go black as a wave ripples down, rumbling and roaring as it swallows. The dead carry me deeper into the heart of the cemetery. I have a sudden realization of where they are headed, to the two unassuming headstones just off the main path. I twist to look at the creatures that hold me, Mary at my head, a larger hulking mass at my side, and a familiar tweed suit he saved for Sunday services, a smaller, more decayed body at my feet, with a silver cross at its neck, a cross I remember watching twinkle in the light when I was still small, now reflected by the light of the moon. Mom? Dad? My voice is sore from the screaming. How? What? My mother lowers me onto the patch of dirt between their turnt graves. The sound of her voice 
is hardly discernible through teeth and bone. I, I don't understand. Mary sits, leaning her head on the tombstone, her sightless eyes looking out at the ruin of the town as it continues to crumble and frowns. She whispers to me, her voice strained against her battered vocal cords. I look at my parents. My father corpse nods. It sounds like crunching of dried leaves. My eyes shift to the town of Glinda Green as it is swallowed into a giant sinkhole. A warm hand caresses my cheek, fluttering down, pressing two fingers to my throat. She's cold. Her pulse is weak, but it's there. George! I try to open my eyes, groaning at the pain and the bile that rises in my throat. It's okay, Anna. You're okay. His hand brushes through my hair, my eyes finally open, and I look up at him. The dark circles beneath his eyes, the lines on his face too deep for someone his age. My eyes shift behind him to his sister, Sarah. She holds a phone to her ear. Her hat is off, hair a mess of curls like her brother's. I look around me at the field of grass and stone, beautiful in the morning light, completely undisturbed, sitting up slowly with George's help. I look out at the great hole that stops a few yards from the cemetery gate. What happened? I clench my fists and I feel the bite of metal against my palm. Opening my hand, I look down. My mother's small, tarnished silver cross, the chain wrapped loosely around my hand. Sinkhole. George gazes out into the distance, then looks back at me quizzically. How did you get out of here? I think back to the night before. Mary's voice echoing in my head. The dead take care of their own. The sun can give life, or it can take it away. Searing heat, beating down upon the soil day after day after day with no respite. It takes its toll. But in this tale, shared with us by author Nicole Fowler, there may be respite on the horizon when a storm finally threatens to break. Performing this tale are Kristen DiMercurio and Matthew Bradford. So watch your crops and hope their thirst will be quenched. But remember, sometimes a blessing comes wrapped in a curse. And there's a chance that something came in the rain. The 
The sound of Henry's ball bouncing against the wood floor in the half-empty sitting room at the front of the house is pounding its way towards the kitchen in the back, where I sit at the small wooden table with a cigarette in hand. My head is throbbing from the noise. Henry, why don't you take that outside? Cuz, Mama, it smells funny outside. What is he talking about? As I stare out the kitchen window that looks to be vibrating from the sweltering August heat, all I can see are grassy fields cooked yellow from the sun, reminding me that this long drought we've had has doomed me to another disappointing crop season. There isn't a cloud in the sky, nothing out of the ordinary. Given that my five-year-old son is blind, though, his sense of smell is far better than mine. It looks fine outside to me. Maybe you smell the manure from the Henderson's farm up the road. In Kansas farm country, up the road means ten miles away. They were the nearest neighbors to us. He doesn't budge. Half the time I wonder if he'd also been born deaf for the amount of times he doesn't listen to me. While I bless the heavens for giving me a child, life sure has been testing me since his birth. His father, Billy, and I married in the summer of 27, after meeting at a dance hall in my small hometown of Great Bend, Kansas, before he whisked me away to raise cornfields on the outskirts of the even smaller town of Abilene. He promised me everything I ever wanted, and for a while, he seemed to deliver. Our farm was flourishing. He'd spend hours on end tending to the lush cornfields, crops we'd sell to production plants, stores, markets, and so on. With the money we'd get, we'd often find ourselves traveling to Kansas City to shop, buying city folk furniture and goods. He'd surprise me on occasion with new dresses and jewelry. But my favorite times were when we'd simply spend our evenings having dinner, dancing, and dreaming about what was next. What came next? I got pregnant. As excited as I was, Billy seemed indifferent. That's when I felt something shift in him, in our marriage. Soon after Henry was born, we learned of his blindness. Billy was not pleased. He blamed me for what plagued Henry, which caused a rift between us. Then, as if it happened overnight, our crops had been hit with such a series of droughts and pests that our income started drying up. We even had to sell some of the nice furniture and goods we'd bought just to make some ends meet. Eventually, he spent less time in the fields and more time God only knows where. Sometimes days on end. He took to the drink, often coming home from wherever he'd been with a bruise or two from fights he said he'd never wanted to speak of. Then one day, he came home, and I remember him being drenched from some rainstorm that caught him on the road. He had cuts and bruises all over, to which he insisted he was in a car accident. He looked awful. As I tended to his wounds, he kept saying he wanted to make things right by us, sell the farm and move away. He seemed so frightened. He hugged me that night. I hadn't been that close to him in years, it felt like. We even made love. By the next morning, however, he was gone, without a trace. That was last November, and he hasn't been back since. That isn't just Henry's ball. That is the sound of rolling thunder clapping in the distance. Confused, I look further out the window into the horizon to see if a storm is out there. Nothing out west. The sound of thunder is getting closer. Henry? You hear that? 
Sounds like rain's approaching. Mama, it smells. That must be the rain, sweetie. I put out my cigarette in the ashtray and make my way down the front hall. Leaning against the frame of the front door, I peer out into the distance. Sure enough, a small but mighty-looking rainstorm is approaching us from the east. The Lord's answering my prayers, sweetie. We're finally getting some rain. I look to Henry playing in the sitting room. He's wearing linen shorts, no shirt, and is not at all concerned with the approaching storm. As the thunder grows louder, the wind starts picking up. A quick survey of grass, now swaying, draws my eye to the clothesline just off to the left side of the front porch. Damn. Damn what, Mama? Nothing, just the laundry I hung up, and mind your tongue, young man. I grab the wicker basket that sits at the foot of the staircase by the door and head out to fetch the laundry. As I begin to remove the clothes, I can't help but notice the approaching storm has a funny smell to it. I pause for a moment. It isn't like a rain smell at all, or a manure smell from the Hendersons. It is a metallic smell of sorts. This must have been what Henry meant about the funny smell. I notice something else strange occurring with the storm. From the looks of it, it isn't very big at all. Maybe a quarter mile wide at most. And everything else in the horizon still appears to be blue skies. Then something even stranger happens. The storm stops for a moment, a few hundred yards away from the house. If I had a wilder imagination, I would think that it was almost looking at me. I'd seen tornadoes and other terrible storms in my lifetime, but I'd never seen anything like this. Suddenly, the storm abruptly moves forward towards the house. It's approaching so fast that I grab the rest of the laundry as quickly as I can and dash back to the front door. I make it just in time as the rain sweeps the front porch. I set the basket down, realizing I dropped a silk slip in the doorway that's getting soaked. I go to grab it with the intention of shutting the door, but then I feel the cool breeze come through. This feels quite nice, actually. I close my eyes and feel my skin cool off. This storm ain't so bad. I inhale a deep breath, trying to ignore the unusual metallic smell. As I exhale, I head back to the staircase to hang up my drenched slip when something catches my eye, coming from the sitting room. It's Henry. He's standing at the bay window, focusing intently on something outside. It's almost as if he sees something. Perhaps the smell and the sound of the storm are overwhelming his senses. It's quite something, isn't it, sweetie? He doesn't answer me as he continues to stare blankly out the window. Maybe you'd like to go outside for a bit and feel the rain on your face? Still no answer. I approach him at the window and caress his shoulder to ensure he knows I am trying to talk to him. Does that sound like fun? Splashing about in the rain for a bit? No, not while they're outside. What he says startles me a bit. I look outside and don't see anything unusual. What do you mean, they? Did you hear a critter? No, there were people in the rain. I fall silent. I approach the window to get a better look. No one's out there. Did you hear someone? I... I see them. My gaze shoots back to him. I drop the slip I was still carrying and put my hand to my mouth to cover a soft gasp. What do you mean you see them? I can see people standing in the rain. They're looking at us. A chill goes up and down my spine as I once again look outside and see no one. I'm close enough that my breath fogs the glass. 
Sweetie, I don't see any... Then there's him. Without looking at my son, I know he's pointing at something. Him who? The man in the window. He's looking right at you. I jump back a bit at the thought, growing more terrified of what he's saying. This is unlike him. What kind of game is Henry playing? I turn to him and grab his arm. Now listen here, young man. It's not funny to tease your mother like this. Just then, his eyes start to widen as he backs away slowly from the window, tracing his line of sight to follow something on the outside of the house. He's coming in. I caress my hand over my rapidly beaten heart as I try to follow his gaze. Henry, listen to me. I promise you, there's no one- Why didn't you close the front door? I shoot my gaze to the front hall, unable to breathe. I am now caught in a battle between looking at Henry and at the thing he's supposedly staring at. Something standing in the front hallway. Something my blind son can see. Something invisible to me. Who is it, sweetie? You're scaring me. When he doesn't answer me, I decide to play along. Who's there? I ask the space before us. I move to stand in front of Henry, nudging him behind me for his protection. I beg of you to leave. This is a godly house. We don't want any trouble. I look around in all directions, fearing I must look foolish talking to someone who isn't there. But then I feel it. That feeling you get when you know you're not alone. The air in the house gets cooler, and the skin on my arms turns to goose flesh. There is a presence before me. I can feel it. It is looking right at me. Perhaps it is sudden curiosity that drowns out my fear, but in this moment, I slowly lift my hands to see if I can connect with it. Who are you? I feel a tug on my other hand down by my side. I look down to see Henry looking up at me, directly into my eyes, something he's never done before. Lord have mercy. He's looking at me. Then it all starts coming together. I prayed for rain. It came. I'd have been in such a state of shock until now that I didn't immediately realize the miraculous event of my son being able to see for the first time in his life something I always prayed for. Whatever is in this storm, in our home, has to be some kind of miraculous gift sent to us. I feel tears forming in my eyes as I smile down at Henry's angelic face. But Henry's expression isn't that of joy and happiness. There is some fear there. What is it, Henry? He just shakes his head no in response, as if to say he doesn't want me to touch the presence. I don't want him to be frightened. There is nothing to be scared of. You can see, for the first time in your life, the rain that came directly to us to end our drought. Further extending my hand, I finally make contact with the presence. My whole body feels electric. I have to believe God sent them to answer our prayers. I stroke the space before me as if I were stroking the cheek of an angel, or that of my Billy as if he finally came back to make things right. My moment of joy is interrupted when I hear Henry whisper, God didn't send them. I look down at him in disbelief for saying such a thing. Just then, the presence tightens what feels like a powerful, calloused grip around my wrist and slices my palm wide open, diagonally from wrist to the bottom of my little finger with what feels to be a dull, jagged knife. I scream in pain as I push Henry away from me to keep him at a distance. Let go of me! Blood drips from my hands to the floor, 
I tug, trying to pull away. When the presence finally lets me go, I fall to the floor shouting and crying hysterically in pain as I cradle my bloody hands to my chest. Leave! Get out of my house! I notice Henry, who's standing across from me. He turns his sights from me on the floor to the very tall, glooming presence. Oh no. Don't you dare hurt my son! But Henry seems to be listening to something the presence is saying. He mutters a few words in agreement, and then he nods his head. Henry, can you hear what it's saying? He says they'll leave for now, but they'll be back. Why? What do they want? To collect what's owed, because... Damn it, cause what? Cause Daddy never held up his end of the deal. End of the deal? What does Daddy have to do with this? In this moment, the rain stops, and the clouds part to let the sun shine once again. Before Henry can answer me, he convulses slightly. He then looks around as he always does, behind blinded eyes, relying solely on his other senses. He crouches down to feel around the floor for his ball. Henry! I crawl over to him. What just happened? You tell me right now! I think I lost my ball. No, with those... people? Who were they? What people, Mama? Don't tease me, young man. What do they want with us? I attempt to shake some sense into him. You said they were going to come back? Why? What does Daddy have to do with it? I I don't know. You do know! Answer me! Mama, you're, you're hurting me. I reflect on how aggressive I'm being with him, then feel my heart sink to the floor. He really doesn't know what is happening. I let go of his shoulders and back away. I'm, I'm sorry, sweetie. Mama just injured herself and got scared for a moment. I caress his cheek, letting him know everything is okay. I get up from the blood-stained floor and feebly walk back towards the kitchen. Can I play ball again, Mama? Sure. Back in the kitchen, I open the liquor cabinet Billy used to frequent and grab a bottle of bourbon. I remove the cap and set the bottle on the counter, knowing what I must do. I take the kitchen cloth, hanging near the wood-burning stove, wad it up, and place it in my mouth. I bite down hard as I count backwards from five. When I reach one, I grab the bottle and pour the alcohol onto my sliced palm. I immediately cry out unholy words as the cloth muffles the sound. The pain makes me so nauseous that I brace myself over the sink. A minute later, I finally remove the cloth from my mouth and wrap it around my hand. I watch as blood seeps through the fabric. My breath starts to catch up with me as I pull away from the counter and sit back down at the kitchen table. I use my trembling, uninjured hands to grab another cigarette from my case. As I put it to my lips, that same smell comes back. The smell from the rain, what I thought was metallic. It was the smell of blood. I quickly and nervously grab the matchbook and light my cigarette. I take a deep inhale, and as I exhale, I return my gaze out the kitchen window. The grassy fields are once again yellow from the sun. There is no storm anywhere on the horizon, not a single cloud in the sky. It's as if it never happened. But I know it did. I just don't know why or what. Looking down at my injured hand resting on the table, I know I'm in a state of shock and confusion. Confusion as to how a storm could seemingly target us like that. Confusion as to what possessed Henry to suddenly see for the first time in his life 
then say terrible things, then lose his sight again and act as though nothing happened. Why could Henry see them and I couldn't? What did he, or rather, the presence, mean by collecting what was owed? Or that Billy played some kind of a role in all this? Did that explain all those times he came home bloodied and bruised, sometimes soaked, and I assumed it had been because of a fight? Did that explain his disappearance? More importantly, when would they be back? It was then I realized I never asked Henry exactly who they were or how many of them were in the rain. My breath picks up again as I grow terrified at what was to come. Just as everything is starting to go silent in my head, I can hear Henry, who has found his ball again, and starts to bounce it once more. Every town has a dark, dark house. Abandoned and crumbling, some might say cursed. Perhaps, say, anyone who visits this house ends up dead in the river. So, of course, nobody goes there. Except, in this tale, shared with us by author Stephen M. Fletcher, one person does go to the cursed house and offers her services as a tour guide. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers and Nicole Goodnight. So yes, Carly will accompany you to this residence most evil. We'll follow you up the trail. Most towns have at least one spooky old abandoned house that everyone says is haunted. My town had two. One the kids called the Murder House, but that name didn't keep anyone from sneaking in and partying there. The other house didn't have a common nickname. It overlooked a river at the end of a wooded trail, and seemingly no one ever went inside. It was said that whoever did wound up dead in the river. Carly Morgan said that wasn't true. I've been in that house lots of times. I'll take you. So, one night, I lied to my parents that I was hanging out with my usual friends, and instead I met up with Carly. I lied to my friends as well, less because of where I was going and who I was going with. We followed the overgrown trail through the woods to the riverbank, and there was the house. The doors were boarded up. Carly showed me how to get in through a window in the back. As soon as we'd both climbed inside and taken a few steps, the window slammed shut behind us with a loud, percussive clap. I jumped. Carly didn't. (laughs) That always happens. She hopped a little on the balls of her feet and the whole floor jiggled, rattling the window pane. Old wood, old window frame. Everything's warped in this place. Nothing fits together right anymore. We were in a kitchen. Carly had told me not to bring a flashlight, so I hadn't. There was enough moonlight to see that the kitchen was old-fashioned. And though there was damage, it looked like the result of the ravages of time rather than the destructive impulses of teenagers. A few pots and pans hung from the walls, but most had fallen. Countertops were covered in cobwebs and specked with rodent fur and feces. Something had left a large, greasy streak on the floor 
that ran between the window we'd come in and the doorway, as if someone had made a pass with a big mop before giving up against the caked on grime. There was an unpleasant, moldy odor. Hey, look at this. Carly drew my attention to a perfectly preserved mouse skeleton pinned inside an ancient mouse trap in the corner. Doesn't it look like he's smiling? She certainly was smiling, so I made myself smile too. Whoa. Carly led me deeper into the house. The living room had lamps and furniture, art and pictures and frames too dusty to make out in the dark. All stuff that teenagers would have nicked, smashed, or ripped apart years ago if this had been the murder house. We sat on the mildewy couch and shared the single beer Carly had brought. There were no other empty beer bottles or evidence of delinquency like cigarette butts or condom wrappers. No graffiti. Why do you think nobody comes here? I come here. I guess people just need a reason to explain why bad things happen. Like Caden Lipsy last year. I had no idea anything was wrong with him, that he was dealing with suicidal thoughts or whatever. That messed me up. For a long time. Carly leaned closer and looked in my eyes. For a moment, I thought we were going to kiss. Then she said to come on and stood up and led me into the hallway. That streaky smear ran from the kitchen doorway along the hallway to the staircase, as if someone had dragged a dirty wet towel across the dark wood, leaving gray mud blotches. Carly said we should see the second floor. She pushed me to go first. Halfway up the stairs, which groaned with every step, a closed door facing us on the second floor landing slowly creaked open by itself. I froze. My eyes absorbed all available light and everything in my field of vision with heightened clarity. The glistening wood of the banister, the cracks in the ceiling, the muddy streak on the stairs, the darkness beyond the door above. But Carly said, That always happens too. She strode confidently up the stairs and shut the door, then trounced back down the staircase. I could feel it bounce and hear it cause other things in the house to rattle. When she reached a certain step, the door creaked open again. Old doors, old hinges, old floorboards. Nothing to be afraid of. I shook off my fear, or most of it, and let Carly give me a tour of the second floor. There was a room with an antique sewing machine and a nasty bathroom with water damage from floor to ceiling. And then Carly led me into the room that had creaked open, which turned out to be a bedroom. There were plenty of windows, but the moth-eaten curtains and the trees outside made it one of the darkest rooms in the house especially after Carly shut the door behind us. She produced a candle from her backpack, set it on top of the large dresser, and lit it with a lighter. By the flickering candlelight I saw again, unlike the murder house, there was plenty to steal or break. A heavy-looking floor-length dress hung from the closet door. There was a small bed, which was made, with a floral print comforter and big feather pillows. It gave off a chalky smell that was somehow depressing. Carly plopped down on the foot of the bed, kicking up dust, and patted the spot beside her. I sat. She looked into my eyes once more, and again I thought we were going to kiss. Do you remember when you made fun of me in middle school? Of course I remembered. But I said, did I? You said my hair was greasy, and you told everyone I had a rat face. Her tone was not accusatory. There was amusement in her voice. I shifted uncomfortably. I'm sorry. You used to sit behind me in Spanish, and one time I heard people laughing in the back of the room, and I turned around and you had one of those little electric fans and you were blowing it at me and holding your nose. I didn't remember doing that, but I believed her. 
And then in eighth grade, all of a sudden, you pretended to like me. And you said you'd go with me to a dance, but when I showed up, you were already there with Laura Weinberg. I'm sorry. We were just kids. It was only a few years ago. She was still smiling at me, coolly. I looked down. The muddy trail was in this room as well, leading from the bed to the door. Do you know anything about whoever used to live here? Not much. She was sad. She was angry. She drowned in the river. Carly gestured toward the dress hanging on the closet door. Her favorite dress is one almost exactly like that one. How do you know it was her favorite? Because she drowned herself in it? Or maybe it wasn't her favorite. Maybe she chose it because it was big and heavy and she knew it would weigh her down so she couldn't change her mind. They never found her. Then how do you know? Carly rose and stood before me, putting me eye level with her hips. She told me to lay down. I didn't want to, but I let her put her hands on my shoulders and gently guide me back until my head was on one of the musty pillows. The feathers inside poked my scalp. It was so cool, it seemed wet. What do you feel? I was silent for a moment, thinking. My limbs felt heavy. I thought about lifting them, but to do so suddenly wasn't worth a bother. Something like a pit opened gradually in my chest, and something caught in the back of my throat. It was like I was going to cry, but crying felt like a lot of effort. Just thinking about it made me tired. Carly asked again what I felt. It took some will to make myself answer. Depressed. Anything else? Any anger? All I could do was shake my head a little. No. Huh. That's interesting. You only feel her sadness? I can feel it too, but I feel her anger stronger. Caden said he couldn't feel anything at all, but then he started getting all aggro. I thought about what Carly had just said. I could see her watching me think about it. Maybe I did feel a bit of anger that she was talking about. Not strong enough to let me get up, but enough so that I could say, You said it wasn't true. I said it wasn't true that whoever comes in this house winds up dead in the river. And it isn't true. I've come here lots of times. She always lets me go. I heard a loud slam from somewhere in the house. A percussive clap. This time it was fear that allowed me to push against the heaviness and say, What was that? I told you when we came in. That always happens. When a young man finds his life entirely uprooted, it's an unexpected challenge for him. Pulled from the town where he grew up, cut off from his father, it's a confusing and lonely experience. But in this tale, shared with us by author Nick Creighton, he finds some comfort in the indecipherable murmurings he hears from the nearby woods. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Nicole Goodnight, and Sarah Thomas. So we won't leave you in suspense any longer. Before we branch off into new territory, let's listen hard to The Whispering Trees. When I was seven, 
my parents had separated. I could hear them talking a lot at night, but never what they were saying. My room was upstairs, so loud as they were, I could only ever hear the muffled voices below me in the kitchen. I'd press my ear against the floor, hoping to understand why they were so angry, straining to hear any clues on how to help them. I never did find out what they said during their screaming matches. A year of yelling went by before my dad slammed the front door one evening, disappearing into the night. My mom grabbed a large bag and led me outside, buckling me into our car and driving away. I remember she kept wiping her eyes when she said we were moving to another town where my grandparents lived. I hadn't seen my grandparents since I was a baby. I asked if we were going to meet my dad there, but my mom wouldn't say. I haven't seen my dad since. It had been a couple of months and I was constantly upset that I didn't have my old room, my friends, or my dad. I loved my mom, but I couldn't understand why we had to leave. It caused a great deal of strain on our relationship. One day, my mom was extremely stressed because I had been complaining again over dinner. She wouldn't look at me as I spoke and just picked at her food. It made me so angry that I shouted at her. How I wished Dad was here and that it was her fault for driving us away. I quickly realized how horrible it was when she finally looked up and screamed at me to stop. Tears dribbled down her cheeks. I'd never heard her yell so clearly before. It had always been smothered by my bedroom carpet. I was frightened and ran out the back door, still gripping my favorite toy, a small blue soldier. It was the first time I'd seen my mom cry. The sun was just starting to set as I slipped between the loose boards of our fence. I wasn't sure where I wanted to go, I just wanted to go far away. I had played in the grove of trees behind this house before, but I ran much deeper this time, weaving between the large cedar trees that circled the entirety of town. It quickly got much darker as the little sun that was left became blocked out by the monstrous old growth. When I finally stopped in a clearing, I couldn't see my home or the grove when I turned around. There were a bunch of knotted, angry trees surrounding me. I remember thinking they looked like the scary woods from Snow White, a movie I was very familiar with at the time. As I approached each one, I made out a face embedded in the dark. Bumps became noses, exposed roots were feet, and any hollows appeared as wide mouths and eyes. I was nervous as it grew darker. The frustration I had felt earlier had dissipated at this point though I wasn't sure if it was from the long sprint or from the uncanny wooden creatures that looked down at me. I felt watched as I sat down between the trees, digging at the earth below with the soldier's blue rifle. The clearing became smaller after a while as the shadows closed in. It would be night soon. I knew my mom would probably come looking for me once almost all the daylight was spent, so I turned in the direction that looked familiar and started to walk. But I stopped. A noise came from behind me. It sort of sounded like a voice, but I couldn't understand what it was saying. It was much too quiet to tell. A mix of curiosity and bravery turned me around, half expecting some gnome or fairy to startle me. There was nobody there. Yet I could have sworn it was a voice. 
It sounded like it was coming from in front of me now. As I took small steps forward, I continued to scan the woods around me, worried that someone was going to pop out. I was hoping that I was truly alone out there, but I clutched the blue soldier tightly in case I had to run. I kept my forward momentum, though, until I was standing in front of this one tree that resembled a tired old man. Its roots stretched out in each direction, casting a net in the soft earth. The bark was old and peeling in places, some holes perforating the tree's flesh like pockmarks. The sound was clearer now. I circled around the tree slowly, fully expecting to catch somebody hiding behind it. I repeated in my head, Please don't let anyone be there. I jogged around the tree a few times, but for better or worse, I was alone. Yet the voice persisted. It was coming from the tree. My suspicion was confirmed when I gently placed my palms against the rough bark and leaned my ear in, pressing it firmly against the tree trunk like I did with my floor to try to hear my parents a few months ago. The voice was loudest here, but it was still muffled. It had no distinguishable features. It was impossible to tell if it was a man's voice or a woman's. Although it was quiet, it didn't sound like a whisper. Its rhythm had urgency, but it wasn't loud enough to be considered a yell. There was no way to make out any words. I tried my best to talk back anyway. I asked its name and how old it was. The sound replied, but no words came through. Only the silhouette of language. I grabbed a rock and carved a gash into the wood before connecting my ear to the pulpy surface. I figured that the tree might have needed a mouth to speak, but it made no difference as I plugged my open ear and waited. The voice was faster, more erratic, and I feared that I hurt the tree without realizing it. I apologized, thinking how much it would have hurt if someone had cut me instead. As badly as I wanted to understand what it was trying to say, I had to get home. Any darker and I would have lost my way. Before I left the clearing, I turned and shouted to the old tree that I would come back for him. I meant it, too. I probably got halfway back on my own before I heard my mom calling my name in the dark. I barely had a chance to move towards her voice before I was blinded. She was sprinting towards me, carrying a giant yellow flashlight. I remember her falling to her knees in a hurry to examine me for any injuries, grabbing my face and staring into my eyes as the flashlight lay on the ground, pointed upwards. Her wet, hazel eyes glittered in the dark, and she told me not to run off again, no matter how upset I was. I had completely forgotten that I was upset by that point. I silently nodded my head before she leaned in to kiss my forehead. She stood up, holding my hand, and we walked home together in the dark. I told her about the tree. She laughed and then explained how all trees talk to each other, and that she'd talk to them too when she was my age. I felt better knowing that I wasn't just imagining things, but there was something still bothering me. I told her that I couldn't understand what it was trying to say, and she earnestly told me, You'll just have to listen more carefully from now on. Trees can only whisper after all. We returned home and she tucked me into bed like she always did, 
the fight from earlier a distant memory. My mind slipped away while thinking about the whispering tree. Elementary school and chores filled the rest of my week. It was always dusk by the time I was done, and my mom wouldn't let me go outside that late, especially not after the night of our fight. It wouldn't be until Saturday before I got the chance to satisfy my curiosity. With my blue man in hand once again, I made my way back to the same spot I had found by mistake. It was a lot easier to find in the light of the afternoon. This time, I had told my mom I was going to play in the grove and promised to be back before sunset. She told me to say hi to the trees for her. I said that I would. The clearing looked a bit different during the day. The faces on the trees weren't as pronounced as they were when the sun casted deep shadows along the surface. I moved towards the elderly one, speaking out loud as I approached. I asked if he remembered me. There was no sound this time as I closed in on the giant, ancient cedar. Even after I pressed my ear against the same spot as before, I couldn't hear anything. I apologized that I hadn't come sooner, worried that he was upset since I left in a hurry last time. I knew how it felt to have someone leave suddenly, not knowing if they'd come back. I worked my way around his trunk until I found a smooth spot on the side and lay my palm flat comforting him like my mom did the night she found me in the woods. I sat on the needle-covered ground, grasping the loose soil below me and tossing it to the side with my empty hand. I was about to get up and leave, stating loudly that I was going home. And then I heard it. It was the voice from before. It wasn't coming from the old-looking cedar this time. I stood up and turned my head sideways, pointing my ear like a parabolic dish until I found where the sound was strongest. It was a few meters away. This one also had some of its bark missing. There was a large burl sticking out a meter up the trunk with some indentations that looked like downturned, slanted eyes with a similarly downtrodden smile. It looked sad. I pressed my head against the growth, right where its mouth was, and, like before, covered my exposed ear. I tried to listen more carefully this time. Again, I asked for its name and age, wondering if it was younger than the other tree. I told it my name and pointed to the older tree, explaining how he's my friend, that this tree could trust me. I concentrated as much as possible, but I just couldn't understand its responses. All I knew was that it really wanted to tell me something. I stepped back and admired the sheer size of these giants. I made a joke about hoping I'd have a growth spurt like theirs someday. They didn't laugh, but it felt nice having someone to talk to in this new town, even if they were a bunch of trees. The sun was starting to fall behind the mountain ridge, reminding me of my promise to my mom. I told my friends that I had to go, but I would be back again, hopefully sooner than last time. I rushed back to the grove as quickly as I could, hoping to alleviate any worries my mom might have had. Sunday was for church. The entire time I sat in my pew, I could only think about the next opportunity I'd have to see my tree friends. The varnished grain of the seat in front of me made me wonder if trees liked to be made into furniture. 
or if it made them feel lonely. After the service, my mom and I spent the rest of the day with my grandparents. I like my grandma and grandpa. I told them about my wooden friends, and they listened intently, saying I had such a big imagination that I was beyond my years. I asked my mom what they meant, and she said they were just surprised at how much I'd grown. They hadn't seen me since I was born, after all. It would be another four days before I could see my friends again. Friday landed on a holiday, so I had a whole afternoon to myself. No school or work to get in the way of my plans. My mom was talking with my grandma on the phone. I could tell that it was about my dad again. She'd always speak shortly when he came up, using his first name, thinking I didn't know it. But I did. I wanted to tell her that I wanted him to come home, that I missed him. But I didn't. I knew she wouldn't understand. But I knew who would. With my blue companion in tow, I made my way into the woods. The branches above me rustled as the late summer wind moved through the vast swath of forest. It reminded me of their voices, like they were excited to see me and were guiding me to our meeting place. When I arrived at the clearing, I announced my presence like before. I knew the trees wouldn't welcome me, but it felt like the right thing to do. Right away, the tree closest to me was making sounds. I was convinced that this time I would finally understand them. At this point, I didn't really even think of them as trees anymore. I'd spent the last few days waiting to see them. I'd given them names, made up stories, and wrote out the personalities behind each one. This one had softer features than the others, and had some yellowed leaves. I called her Autumn. Small growths appeared all over her, but two were close enough to resemble large, bulbous eyes. There was some yellowing amber sap leaking from them. It was as if she was weeping, slow, time-encrusted tears. I went to wipe them away, but my palms quickly became sticky. I put down the soldier on her roots and tried using some leaves to clean my hands. I wrapped my arms around her rough exterior and pulled in close, hoping she would feel my warmth. I began asking her how her day was before telling her about my mom and my dad. I asked if trees had problems too if there was anything I could do to help them. Twigs snapped behind me, but when I twisted my head, I could see that the forest remained as empty as it always was. I was just as alone as I always was. Always alone. The realization hit me like a truck. I was the weird kid who talked to trees. The disheartening thought made me slump down to my knees. My forehead was pressed against the bottom of the trunk. I could feel the tears welling up in my eyes. I wanted so badly for a friend to talk to. I wanted one who would talk back. I wanted my dad back. Still, I wanted to hear the trees and help them with their problems too. They just needed to be louder. I cried out to the trees again one last time as my face started leaking. Please, I can't hear you. I really want to, but you have to speak louder. For the first time, there was a distinct, muffled reply. It was only two words. A desperate plea with no instruction. 
Help me. Another twig snapped. I fell backwards. I couldn't believe that I finally received a response. I needed someone else to see to know that I hadn't just gone crazy. I must have stuttered as I responded, truly astonished at what had occurred. I, I, I'm going home. I'm going to get my mom. I'll be back soon, I, I promise. Please, just don't leave me. And then I ran. Faster than I had ever run before. I ran back through the forest, past the grove, through the rickety fence and into my house. I grabbed my mom's shirt just as she finished putting away some plates, begging her to come with me. When she asked what I needed her to see, I explained in a hurry. The whispering trees, Mom. Trees that talk. It's just like you said. She was a bit startled. I thought she might have forgotten our conversation. Her face was skeptical, but it softened as she looked at my dirty, wet face. She knew the recent changes had been hard on me. She took my hand, giving no resistance, as I led her through the exact same route that was now very familiar to me. When we finally reached the clearing, I let go of her hand and ran up to the same tree as before. I practically slid onto my knees, waving my mom over, patting the springy ground beside me. Press your ear down here. It's hard for them to talk, so you need to be near the roots. I think that's where their voice box is. Okay, okay. Here I go. My mom brushed her hair aside and gave me a small smile as she leaned in to listen. I called Autumn again, asking her to speak up one more time for my mom. I thought she would be happy when she heard it, but she wasn't. Her head jolted away from the bark and then looked at me. There was no smile on her face, only shock. She looked over my head and glanced around at the empty clearing as a nearby animal snapped another twig. It's the tree, Mom. I told you that the trees here can talk. She pressed her ear against it one more time, looking down at the dark earth beneath us and brushed her fingers through the soil. The smirk on her face from earlier had completely disappeared as she moved her hand over the mouth. She sat up and told me we were going home. I couldn't understand. I was mad. I finally got the trees to talk, and now you want me to leave? Why do you always make us leave? She stood up and bent over, grabbing my face like she did the night I ran away. But this time her eyes didn't glisten with worry. They trembled with fear. Baby, I'm so, so sorry, but trees? They can't talk. Not like this. I didn't have time to say anything to her before she pulled me up and gave me a quick hug, harder than she'd ever hugged me before. Then she took my hand and pulled me toward the house. When we finally got back, she sat me on the couch and told me not to move, and then proceeded to lock all the doors. I looked around and couldn't see my blue soldier anywhere. I must have left him behind. I wanted to stand up and go look for him, but my mom wouldn't see me if I tried to leave. She was on the phone in the hallway, talking quietly to someone and peeking out the front window every once in a while. It wasn't long before I heard sirens pull up to our home. My mom quickly unlatched the front door and greeted some policemen. I heard her say something about the woods, and then she asked one of them to wait with me. 
I wasn't sure what was going on as she left with them, turning to me and saying she'd be back soon. One of the officers was holding a shovel. A half hour had passed before my mom finally returned. She looked exhausted as she slowly closed the door behind her. Her face was pale, like something had sapped the life from her body. I asked if I could get a drink as she sat down in the chair across from me. She silently nodded her head after a moment, then leaned forward to rest her head in her palms. As I filled my glass at the sink, I looked out the window towards my backyard. There were a few policemen walking out of the woods. One had her arm around another woman. She wasn't dressed like an officer. She was wearing a torn, filthy-looking shirt and didn't have pants on. Her fingers looked dark and crusty. As they walked by, she seemed to turn and look straight at me, so I ducked out of the way. Her eyes were sunken and dark, obscured by matted brown hair. When I slowly stood up to peek again, I saw the others carrying large black bags from out of the forest. Two of them. I had never seen anything like it before, so I didn't quite understand. I wasn't sure where this woman had come from or what they would have been digging up in the woods. As far as I knew, it had only been me and the trees out there. That night, my mom had a quiet talk with me before I went to bed. She said that she was sorry that we moved, that she couldn't tell me why, and that my dad wasn't coming back. I could tell she meant it because she almost started to cry again when she said she missed him too. I asked her if I could call him, but she didn't want me to contact him directly. Not yet. Instead, she suggested that I could write a letter to him, draw him some pictures, and we might be able to send it together. I liked the idea. She wiped away the tears which had started to form with her sleeve, and then looked me in the eyes. The familiar gold-brown shimmered between her puffy red eyelids as she told me that she loved me more than anything. She also made me promise that I would never go into the woods without her again. She said that she would be very sad if I did. After seeing her look so defeated, I didn't want to upset her again. I agreed. She smiled softly, kissed my forehead, and turned out the lights. Before she left, she cracked my window open to let in the gentle, sweet breeze. I laid in bed for a while, but I couldn't stop thinking about what she had said. I got up and turned on my desk lamp before grabbing a pencil and paper. I began writing out the letter. I was excited, but I didn't know what to say. I just started writing down questions for my dad, explaining how it had been hard to make friends. And I even wrote a little about the trees, including scribbles of the three I spoke to. I didn't know how to finish. I had so much more I wanted to say. So I figured I'd leave it till morning. I turned off my lamp, and the sound of crickets sent me off to sleep. When I woke up in the morning, I was a little surprised at how cold the room was. 
It didn't take long to notice that my window was opened a bit wider than before. My curtains were blowing to the side, directing my eyes to the desk. Then, I was even more surprised. My blue toy soldier was sitting on the desk, facing my bed. The same one I left behind in the woods. I rubbed my eyes, but it was still there, sitting on top of the letter. He felt a bit sticky and dirty as I moved him out of the way. My mouth went dry when I saw what was next to his muddy imprint on the paper. There was something new at the bottom. A hastily scrawled sentence. One that I didn't write. I'm sorry they took our friends away. I'll find more soon. I ran to my mom with the paper in my hand. Her eyes went wide and her hands shook. She didn't write it either. She left me in the kitchen to call the police again. I guessed it was to see if they could help us find out who wrote in my letter. We never found out who it was. We've moved twice since then, and I haven't gone back to the clearing in the woods. I promised my mom I wouldn't. I know now that we moved because of what happened during that summer, but my mom would never say so. I'm okay with that, though, since I've made a new, real friend at school. I haven't told them about what happened when I was younger. How I used to talk to trees and press my ear against their trunks, waiting for an answer. How I'd sit in the freshly turned dirt that lay in front of their trunks, wishing I had a friend to talk to. How someone came into my room in the middle of the night to leave me a message. I didn't want to make them uncomfortable. Because now I know that my mom was right. That trees can't whisper. But people can scream. In our final tale, we join Erin. With her parents on a business trip, she's gone to stay with a quirky, some might say strange, relative. There are a lot of eccentricities for Erin to take in, not the least the strange collection her kin possesses. But in this tale, shared with us by authors J.J. Cheeseman and Menon Lysette, it's the scarecrow in the backyard that leaves Erin really shaken. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis and Mary Murphy. So listen hard for that creepy bird botherer. Make sure you're able to hear if he's sneaking in. Try taking down Aunt Audrey's wind chimes. Audrey was a strange woman. She was one of the kindest people I've ever known, but still very strange. 
She didn't trust banks. She kept all of her money in jars and coffee cans around her house. She made her own laundry soap because she didn't trust the stuff they put in the brands you could buy at the store. And she kept dozens upon dozens of jars that were filled to the brim with pennies because she swore that one day the world would run out of copper and she'd be really in the money then. There was a grandfather clock in her living room that had been broken for as long as I could remember. When I asked her about it one time, she simply said, It's broken, but I like how it looks. I'll fix it soon. But she never did. The strangest things in Audrey's house, at least to me, were the wind chimes. There was a set hanging from the ceiling in every room of the house, including the bathrooms and bedrooms. Some were metal, and others were beautifully hand-carved wood. In the summer, Audrey would often have the windows open. Every time a breeze would roll in, the wind chimes would start talking to each other. That's what Aunt Audrey called it. The various woods and metals clinking and tapping together created a unique cacophony that could be heard all throughout the house. It was almost as if each wind chime was a separate voice that was desperate to be heard, and they were trying to speak over one another. One weekend, my parents had to leave for a business trip in Chicago. I couldn't go, so Aunt Audrey agreed to take care of me while they were gone. I was a little anxious. Audrey had watched me before, but this was the first time I'd be staying an entire night with her. And it wasn't just one night, but two. Though my reservations were somewhat assuaged after my parents dropped me off Friday morning. Audrey hugged me warmly. Are you hungry? I guess. The truth was that I was starving. I was so nervous I didn't eat much at all at breakfast, but I didn't want to make it seem like my parents didn't feed me. Good. I was worried. I just made a whole batch of chocolate chip cookies, and I was wondering how on earth I'd eat them all myself. I smiled with relief. I don't know what I was so worried about. Cookies for breakfast? Aunt Audrey was cool as hell. That afternoon, Audrey and I sat on the back porch snapping peas together. A scarecrow, a relic from the past, watched on from its spot in the cornfield behind the house. A strong wind blew, just as it had a dozen times before, and thanks to the open windows, the wind chimes inside the house began their conversations. For a moment, I watched as the tattered flannel the scarecrow wore whipped in the wind. He seemed, if only briefly, to look at me. I closed my eyes and listened to the sound of the chimes. It was something I'd grown accustomed to, a soothing sound that was both comforting and calming. After the breeze died down and the conversation between the wind chimes died with it, I opened my eyes and noticed for the first time that there wasn't a set of wind chimes hanging outside. Aunt Audrey, how come you keep wind chimes inside and not outside? Aren't they supposed to be outside? Audrey looked up from her work and considered the question. The dimples in her cheeks grew as her face became an inquisitive frown. Well, 
You know how you have bad memories or nightmares, things that you don't like to think about? It wasn't a memory or a nightmare, but my mind immediately jumped to our basement at home. At the time, we were getting the door replaced, so there was just an open archway that led to stairs going down into darkness. I had an irrational fear that something was using that dark to hide and watch me from the shadows. And I thought about that every time I walked by the basement. Yes? And what do you do when that happens? Try and not think about it, right? I nodded. Well, houses are like that. This is an old house, Erin. With old bones and even older memories. Except houses can't distract themselves quite like we can. No more than they can sprout legs and walk off. That's what the wind chimes are for. To distract them? Exactly. The wind chimes help the house forget the bad things. Audrey was known for saying off-the-wall things every now and again, but she always said them with a kind of spacey, distant gaze. Like she knew what she was saying was nutty, but this was different. She looked me dead in the eyes, like houses have memories they needed distractions from was not only a fact, but basic common knowledge that most folks knew about. I had more questions, but I didn't press any further. Something in my gut told me that I didn't want any more answers. That night, I remember lying in bed trying desperately to fall asleep. Audrey had a strict 8 o'clock bedtime. It was the only thing I disliked about staying at her house. My bedtime at home was 9.30, and I could never fall asleep easily before then. I would lie in bed and stare up at the ceiling while my brain raced with thoughts. That night, my mind was on the wind chimes and Audrey's creepy explanation. A sudden and soft tinkling sound jolted me out of my thoughts. The only light in the bedroom was from the tiny night light that was plugged in on the opposite side of the room. There was a writing desk pushed against the wall near the nightlight, and above it was a set of wind chimes. They swayed gently back and forth, the metal bells and bars lightly tapping against one another. The soft tune they produced was joined by the other wind chimes throughout the house. It seemed that Aunt Audrey kept all the windows open at night, too. It was unsettling to be there in the dimly lit guest room and hear the bells and chimes from all around. Even with the walls slightly muting their conversations, the wind chimes could still be heard. The wind chimes helped the house forget the bad things. Aunt Audrey's words shot to the forefront of my mind and they were followed by goosebumps up and down my arms. I threw off the covers and marched quickly across the room. The sound of chirping crickets was silenced as I slammed the windows shut. I then hurried to the wind chimes and took them down, placing them carefully on the desk. I all but ran back to bed, pulling the covers up snugly up to my chin. I could still hear the chimes elsewhere in the house, but at least the ones in my room were quiet. 
I slept terribly that night. I had a nightmare that there was a man hung by his neck from a rope just above my bed. I was completely paralyzed. I couldn't even shut my eyes. I was forced to look up in horror as the man's dirty shoes swayed inches above my face. In the morning, I had bags under my eyes wide enough to carry one of Aunt Audrey's jars worth of pennies. Oh, you look like you haven't slept a wink. I shook my head as I sat down at the kitchen island and rubbed sleep from my eyes. I explained that I had had nightmares all night. She placed a cold but soft hand on my forehead and remarked I wasn't feverish. Then made me a steaming cup of hot cocoa and sat down next to me. Do you want to talk about it? I shook my head and quietly hoped she'd insist... But she simply smiled and looked off into middle distance. I couldn't get the image of the hanging man out of my mind, no matter how much I told myself it was only a nightmare. It had felt so real, like I could have reached out and touched him if only I could have moved. I swear, I saw him in every tube of every wind chime, hanging there like a puppet with all but one string cut off, leaving him to dangle lifelessly from his neck. I'm not even sure how, at that age, I thought I could conjure that kind of imagery when I'd never seen a hanged man before. Cartoons tend to avoid those visuals. Since my energy was visibly low, Aunt Audrey didn't ask much of me that day. I watched her make homemade soap and cleaning wipes while I handed her lighter objects to help, if you can even call it help. I think she had to go out of her way to find easy tasks for me. I was a hindrance, if anything. A deterrent to detergent, if you will. Throughout the day, I could hear the wind chimes speaking to one another sometimes in whispers, and other times it was almost like they were arguing. Sometimes soothing, sometimes overwhelming. That night, we ate supper on the porch, and that's when I saw him again. The limp, flailing limbs, the hunched head, the flannel shirt. It was the scarecrow. Potent sense of dread filled me, a fight-or-flight instinct that kicked all rational thought aside in favor of survival. It had been real, I realized. The hanging man was no man at all. It was the scarecrow, which had undoubtedly crawled inside through one of the many open windows and made its way to my bedroom last night. Had I not seen him move just the evening prior? It had looked at me, hadn't it? There was only one way to keep him from coming back, and that was to close the windows as soon as Aunt Audrey went to bed. Not that I didn't try before nightfall, but she'd undo my work the moment I walked out of the room. I tried to explain it was to keep the scarecrow out, but she laughed and ruffled my hair. Adults never believe children, do they? As soon as I heard her light snoring that night, I shuffled out of bed to do the deed. I'd never seen the house by moonlight, save for the hallway leading to the bathroom. 
it was a lot scarier than in the day. The hanging chimes cast odd shadows that reminded me of haunted woods and fairy tales. The jars of pennies looked like heads, and I imagined eyes following me from room to room as I shut the windows. I finished with the small window in the guest bathroom so I could relieve myself and hide out in my room until morning. As I headed back, I felt a sudden jolt of panic from movement in my peripheral vision. Something was breathing at the end of the hall. I could hear it. I could see a low silhouette just outside the bounds of my vision. But as I slowly turned, I heard the faintest of clicking sounds near it. Like jostled by the air current from me opening the bathroom door. Followed by another slightly farther. There was nothing standing there, just a wind chime slowly spinning like a child's mobile. Still... I was unsettled enough that I carried the chair from the desk in my room and took it down, apologizing to it beneath my breath. I dove into bed, still feeling a little shaky from the false scare. I hid under the covers and hoped the night would pass uneventfully. The sound of shuffling outside my bedroom door woke me I don't know how early in the morning. And the fear I felt then seemed to come from the inside out. I somehow awoke terrified, rather than waking and then becoming afraid. Cold sweat seeped into my sheets, and I felt as though something was watching me. I had a mental image of the scarecrow hovering over my bed again, watching, waiting to strike. But I couldn't bring myself to check. I couldn't bring myself to confirm it was real. But more importantly, alert it to my presence if it wasn't already acutely aware of where I was and that I was awake from the sound of my heavy breathing. I heard shuffling again, then slapping against my bedroom door. This time... It was followed by a chorus of wind chimes ebbing through the house in a wave. Either I'd missed a window, or the scarecrow had found another way in. Either way, I wanted the chimes to stop. They were drowning out the scratching of the scarecrow's feet, which made it impossible to tell where it was in relation to me. They were drowning out any chance I had at screaming for help if I could muster up the courage to scream, and they were making it so hard for me to think. Suddenly, I felt a pair of fingers slowly stroking along the top of my head through the thick fabric of the blanket. Up and down. Up and down. I white-knuckled the pillow hoping if I played possum, it would eventually leave me alone like it had the night before. All through the night, I felt that nauseating caress, refusing to stop or slow. I could feel my skin growing irritated, but I didn't dare make a move. 
This was a game of chicken between me and the scarecrow. I hoped my skin wouldn't be rubbed raw from exposure, like how a consistent drip of water in one spot can eat holes into even the toughest of rocks. Still, I didn't move. Not even as my body started to ache and my muscles began to cramp. I only moved when the caress finally stopped and daylight slowly flooded in, though I couldn't tell you in which order those came. In the distance, the sound of a phone ringing stirred me from my semi-slumber. I could hear Aunt Audrey talking through the walls. The one-sided conversation made it clear I wasn't going home today, as planned. No, of course. It's no trouble at all. She's been a perfect little angel. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. I'll tell her when she wakes up. I peeked out of the bedroom and down the hall, catching a glimpse of my aunt setting the phone back on the receiver. She was blissfully unaware of last night's intruder. Would he come back tonight? I had no reason to believe otherwise. I needed a plan, I thought, as I headed into the living room. Some way of keeping myself and Aunt Audrey safe tonight when he tried creeping inside again. I combed the floor for proof. If I could only find a single strand of hay, I could show her and she'd have to believe me. Morning, Anne. I jumped and let out a short scream. She'd managed to get behind me soundlessly. No, not soundlessly. It was the wind chimes. I hadn't heard her footsteps because of the wind chimes. Just like with the scarecrow. They were a nuisance. They rendered my sense of hearing almost useless. If we were going to survive the night, I was going to have to take them down once Aunt Audrey was asleep. Your parents just called. Their flight was delayed, so I get you all to myself until tomorrow morning. I hope you don't mind. I shrugged. I think we should make brunch this morning. What do you say? There was a flicker of excitement in her eyes. I couldn't help but smile back. I agreed, trying to match her level of energy, but falling a bit short. I was dead tired, but the prospect of pancakes and eggs and bacon were enough to restore my mood slightly. After lunch, Aunt Audrey and I spent some time outside, and as we played, my eyes kept going to the scarecrow. He was eerily still, hanging like a dead man, head hunched down. There was something unsettling in the fact that he looked like he hadn't moved an inch. It was like he was doing it on purpose, like he was mocking me. Go ahead. I imagined him saying in a grainy voice. Tell her. No one's going to believe you. I'll get you tonight. This was a game to him. He'd expunged every single iota of proof he'd moved 
just to make it look like I had imagined the whole thing. But I knew I hadn't imagined it. Not the sounds of him shuffling about, and not the sensation of his hands stroking my head all night like a cat kneading at your lap before walking away. I was a toy meant to be played with for his own twisted amusement. Not tonight, I thought. Tonight, I'd be more thorough. I'd check all the locks and take down all the wind chimes so that I could head him off at the pass if he found a weak spot and tried to break in. That determination, sadly, wouldn't last me very long. As day turned into night, I became more nervous than brave. And it must have been noticeable because Aunt Audrey asked me what was wrong. When I tried to explain my skittishness away, she offered, Why don't you sleep in my room tonight? We can put your mattress on the floor and have a sleepover. I gratefully accepted, because either way, I knew I'd feel safer with an adult in the room. We spent the evening chatting before we both, as Aunt Audrey worded it in a fake British accent, retired to the bedchamber. She tucked me in and, to my dismay, turned her bedside lamp on so she could read a bit, wasting valuable time I could have spent on protecting the house home alone style. Once I finally heard her snoring, I slowly and quietly slipped out of bed and patrolled the house, closing and locking all the windows once more. I placed her heavy jars of pennies at the foot of unlockable doors, both as a weight to prevent them from opening and as rudimentary alarm bells. The sound of scattering coins would tell me where he was, I figured. I smeared Aunt Audrey's homemade soap on door handles and windowsills to make them harder to open and make him slip if he did get in. I then methodically took down every wind chime one by one. I felt guilty doing so without permission, but I figured it was easier to ask for forgiveness. Finally, I looked out into the field and saw the scarecrow still on his perch. For now. There was one last door to secure, and it was the one to the guest bedroom. I'd been putting it off, but I couldn't wait any longer. The feeling of dread as I approached its still open frame reminded me of my own basement. How I'd clench my jaw and hold my breath as I hurried by the archway framing the abyss. I tried not to look. I tried squeezing my eyes shut as though my eyelids were a protective force field. But as I reached for the knob, I heard a deep, croaky breath that made me open my eyes. Just a quick look, really, into what should have been an empty room. The scarecrow was still in the field. I'd just seen it. There was no reason for the room to be anything but empty. And yet... It wasn't. 
A man hanged from the ceiling, fingers clawing at the rope tight around his neck. His feet were swinging frantically as he took in small, raspy, desperate intakes of air. His face was red. His lips were turning blue. The veins of his forehead were popping out from the strain, and his eyes were bulging out in a mix of shock and fear. I couldn't do anything but watch in horror as he struggled. I wanted to call for my aunt, but in silencing the house, I must have silenced myself too, because I couldn't make a sound no matter how much I tried. The stranger wheezed, and finally, as though in slow motion, his hands fell to his sides limply as he began to swing back and forth. Back and forth to the same rhythm of the unsettling caress I'd felt last night. Part of me understood then that there had been no evil scarecrow hunting me down at all, that it was something somehow worse, somehow more real. The other part of me still imagined him crawling across the field and towards the house right then and there. I was mesmerized in the worst of ways, a kind of hypnosis that comes only from seeing someone dying in front of you. I couldn't feel my limbs anymore. For all I knew, I was floating in midair just like him. I could feel tears welling in my eyes, but like me, they were too scared to move. He was dead. Well and truly dead. His chest had stopped moving. The redness in his face was fading to white, and his features were slack, almost to an unnatural degree. His mouth looked melted in the way it hung open. I could see myself in the blanket beneath him, and I got scared all over again. I'd been laying under him all night for two nights now. And then he gasped loudly. His head jerked up. His hands gripped at the rope around his neck. His legs kicked the air violently. He thrashed and tried to breathe and turned red. Then blue. Then white. Then motionless again. By now, I could feel a tingling sensation in my extremities, telling me the numbness was finally subsiding. I swallowed a mouthful of fear and took a step back. But as soon as I did, the hanged man came to life again. And just as quickly, he was dead. I partially understood that I was seeing a loop repeating itself. And just when I'd convinced myself that I was somewhat safe, that he could not break free from the noose and come after me, I caught movement in the corner of my eye. Something was shambling its way towards me from down the hall. It was impossible, I thought. The scarecrow hadn't set off any of my traps. How had he gotten in? How? I ran down the hall and towards the kitchen as fast as my little feet could carry me. I was followed by the same odd scratching at the floor from yesterday. The sound that, to me, evoked stringy, hay-like feet scrambling nearer. 
As I approached the kitchen, the scarecrow's figure slowly crested over the windowsill like a sunrise on the horizon. He was outside. He was on his perch. He hadn't moved. He had never moved. And if that was the case, then what the hell was following me? I didn't have the courage to turn and look. I don't know why I believed I ever had any courage at all. I was delusional to think I could protect myself or Audrey. I let out a pitiful whimper as I stumbled forward. I was still being chased. I could hear and feel it. I was a prey animal and I needed to run to safety. The irony that by blocking off the doors and windows, I'd effectively made it harder for myself to escape was not lost on me. If I'd been old enough to curse, I would have. Somewhere close behind me, a jar of coins came crashing to the floor. I turned the corner into the living room where I hoped I could find a hiding spot to ride out the night. The air in the house had become thick, like the weight of humidity building up to a thunderstorm. I ran into the living room, now sobbing, my vision blurred by tears. That's when I saw Aunt Audrey's silhouette standing by the window. I'd never been more relieved in my life. I ran to her and wrapped my arms around her legs, sputtering frantically. I tried telling her what had happened, but my words were jumbled and the constant sniffles and sobs were making it hard to speak. To my surprise, she didn't hug back. She didn't tell me it would be all right. She didn't pick me up in her arms to protect me. Her body was freezing cold. I hadn't noticed it at first because I was so happy she was there to protect me. But as I squeezed her legs, I really felt it. She was cold and not in the traditional sense. Not like someone who just walked in from shoveling snow for an hour. The closest I could compare is the cold, wet sensation of rubbing alcohol or an ice pack, the kind you use when you sprain your ankle. I wiped my eyes, and as I looked up at her, she clamped her hands down on my shoulders, and I realized what a horrible mistake I'd made. I don't know who she was, but she wasn't my aunt. I tried to peel myself away, but she held firm. I begged and pleaded for her to release me. All the while, I could hear the shambling thing getting nearer. I couldn't even deal with one. How was I supposed to handle two? I bucked and I pulled and pushed and tugged to no avail. It was only when her face... I'm not sure how to explain it, but... Exploded that her grip on me loosened enough for me to run away. I squeezed between the couches and ducked by the grandfather clock, trying to quiet my breathing as I peeked at her from a narrow vantage point. She fell to her knees while blood sputtered out of her face in what I would later come to realize was a gunshot wound. I hugged my knees and tried to will the sun to rise. The house went quiet for a moment, like the hush of the seeker in hide-and-seek straining his ears for any clues. I spent the extended moment holding my breath, and it was released briskly. 
when the shambling shape flashed into my line of vision. I saw him long enough to see he looked like a boy about my age, but he was almost seal-like in the way he moved. His legs dangled behind him like a mermaid's tail being dragged through the sand while he skittered forward on his elbows. The woman I'd mistaken for my aunt suddenly stood up. Her face back to normal. Her loop reset. I gasped. And unfortunately, in doing so, I alerted them both to where I was. There was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. I was cornered with the grandfather clock to my right and the couch at an angle in front of me. The boy squeezed himself behind the couch while the woman swiped at me from above. I cried and kicked at him, but he caught my leg and started to pull. In desperation, I grabbed the grandfather clock and with a violent jerk from the boy, both it and I were jostled. The weights and the counterweights of the clock swung and knocked against one another, making a sound very similar to a wind chime. And in that moment, the woman disappeared, and I couldn't feel the grip on my ankle anymore. The wind chimes helped the house forget the bad things Aunt Audrey had said. Slowly, like the gears of a clock coming to life one by one, I began to piece together what I needed to do and exactly what had set these events in motion. I'd taken down that first wind chime. I'd forced the house to remember, and the only way to stop it was to distract it. The ghosts? Memories? The figures reappeared, and with a strong slap against the wooden side of the grandfather clock, I managed to get a weight to hit the pendulum. I don't know how I hadn't seen the internal organs of the clock for what they were. A giant wind chime. The ghosts flickered on and off as I climbed the sofa, intermittently hitting the clock to produce dings. Once I was facing it, I hurriedly opened its glass door and blew as hard as I could. The weights, chains, and pendulum began to swing. The thick pressure in the air began to subside, and I could feel a sort of draft trickling in from an unknown source. It breathed in and out, in and out, pushing and pulling the clock's mechanisms into a soothing song. It almost sounded like someone meditating. I didn't have to blow again or touch the clock. I only had to keep its door open as something, maybe the house itself? created the air current needed to maintain my safety. Aunt Audrey woke up not long afterwards, and while she never scolded me for taking down her wind chimes, I could see a hint of disappointment in her eyes as she put them back into place. Disappointment, and perhaps a bit of understanding... She asked if I had had a nightmare, and I think that was her way of giving me an out until I was ready to talk. She stayed up with me the rest of the night, singing softly as she combed her fingers through my hair. I had never been more relieved to hear the conversation of the wind chimes. 
I welcomed the sound, distracting as it was. I only found out the truth when I was much older. I was staying over again, now a teenager with my own worries in life. And Audrey and I sat on the porch enjoying sweet tea and sandwiches. No crust, of course. And I asked her about the house. I told her everything. Every single detail, right down to my silly witch hunt with the scarecrow. He was still watching over the field, though he now sported a newer plaid shirt. She nodded knowingly, and then told me the history behind the house. I got it cheap. People don't like homes where there's been a violent crime, which was fine by me because that's all I could afford. She outstretched a hand and placed it gently against the outer wall before continuing. This house has seen some things. It remembers. It mourns. It sings to itself to calm itself down. I nodded, listening to the chimes ringing from room to room like a lullaby. What happened? Aunt Audrey smiled grimly and moved her hand to mine. There was a family who lived here before me. Husband, wife, and a boy. From what the neighbors tell, the father was out of town one day, and the mother was outside feeding the chickens when she heard a terrible sound. Her child fell down the stairs. It was a freak accident, really. He fell in just the right just the wrong way. I remembered how he crawled across the floor, his unmoving legs weighing him down. It could have happened under anyone's watch. Do you remember that time you were chasing the crows and fell on your face? Yeah, you were right behind me. I don't think you could have caught me even if you tried. Accidents happen. That's all it was. But the father didn't see it that way. He blamed his wife for the injury. He tried to accept it, but as the years wore on and the medical bills piled up, he grew ever more resentful of her. I closed my eyes. I could see her face exploding as she held me tightly. He shot her, didn't he? Aunt Audrey nodded. And then he hanged himself. Oh, jeez. I exhaled, shaking my head. I took it in, processed it, and then remembered. Wait, what about the kid? Even though she had only heard the story secondhand... I could see pain in my aunt's eyes. Her free hand gripped the armrest tightly. He left him to starve. Intentionally or not, I'm not sure. I don't know how true this is. But the neighbor I spoke to said the police said the carpet between his mother and father had gone practically flat. He's crawled from one to another for days, hoping one of them would help him. Poor child. 
my insides twisted with secondhand guilt. So, their ghosts haunt the house? She rocked in her chair, looking back at it as she pondered the question. Finally, she shook her head. I don't think so. I think it's just the house's memories. The wind chimes help the house forget the bad things. Exactly. A breeze rolled through the house, filling the air with the soothing sound of wind chimes. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski. Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.